0: Welcome to our first real episode of Women's Place. As I'll say a million times, a woman's place is wherever she wants to be. Women didn't always have that opportunity, and the biggest impediment to that critical choice was a lack of education. So today, we'll talk about education. I've been blessed. My parents sacrificed to pay for my education. My uncle pitched in. My company paid for my master's degree. And now they continue to pay for my PhD. Needless to say, a lot of people's hard work went into providing me these opportunities, but it wouldn't have been possible if not for the amazing women that paved the way. My path isn't so uncommon today. In fact, according to the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report, for 2020, in the category they call educational attainment, they say that 96.1% of the gender gap has been closed. Education has a trickle down effect to other aspects of women's equality, like economic participation and political empowerment. And it's for these reasons that it's important to understand how we closed nearly 100% of the gender gap in education. So, how did we get here? There's a long history before where I'm beginning, and there's a lot that I won't be able to cover. The world is vast. There are regions of it that I'm not familiar with, and I know that certain places like China have a long, rich heritage that I can't possibly become familiar enough with to do proper justice, but I will try to touch on most things. My experience has been with Western history, so that's where I'm going to begin. I got my master's degree in liberal arts, and I started to think about Why did we name it liberal arts? Apparently, liberal arts goes back to medieval times. In Latin, liberal has its roots in free and unrestricted. The education given in liberal arts was what every free person and members of the upper classes needed to know and understand to be a contributing member of society. That's why you'll see topics like grammar, logic, geometry, philosophy, politics, art, history, all those kinds of things lumped into liberal arts. Education was for the wealthy. And even since ancient Rome, upper-class women seemed to have been educated. Educated in the home, of course. In fact, there's a portrait from Pompeii from the middle of the first century AD that depicts a woman who's clearly prioritizing the fact that she is literate. Her book is in her hand, and her pen. You can feel that she's deep in thought. At some point in history, this became lost. Because during the medieval period, if you were educated, you were in a convent. My boyfriend and I were having this theoretical discussion once about who we would want to be or what era we'd want to live in. And I said, I would want to be a nun. That's because I love learning, and those are the only women that were allowed to learn and study at the level that interests me. But there's one woman that stands out. She was born in 1364, and her name we call her Christine de Pizan. She was born Christina da Pisano. And she was a poet and author at the court of King Charles VI of France. Her writing has been at the center of feminist literature, even though it was the 14th century. She was in Venice, and she's most remembered for her The Book of the City of Ladies. As with most women of that time frame, she got married, she was very young, and her husband died of the plague. When her husband died, she needed to support the family, and she went into writing. Interestingly, her daughter became a nun, which emphasizes how important education was to her. While she's a famous writer and extremely influential in her contribution to literature and the feminist canon, she wasn't formally trained. She wasn't educated in school or anything like that, so we jump forward in time. I know there were countless women in between, but this is where I jumped to Mary Wollstonecraft. I promised that we would talk about her and here we are. Her first book was called Thoughts on the Education of Daughters. Mary Wollstonecraft was born in 1759 in London. She came from a large family who had a comfortable income, but her father constantly would invest his time in drunken ventures and he would beat his wife, and Mary had a very troubled childhood. She was not formally educated, but two of her friendships really determined the the trajectory of her life. The first friendship that was extremely influential was Jane Arden. Jane's father was a philosopher and a scientist, and their household was a very intellectual atmosphere. So she and Jane used to read books together, and they would attend lectures by Jane's father. And this is how Wollstonecraft sort of fostered her intellectual curiosity. Eventually, Mary had to go to work to make a living because her father also lost her inheritance. So she became a lady's companion, and she would read to a wealthy woman that she didn't get along with very well. She despised the wealthy people that she was surrounded by, and I'm sure she felt extremely isolated and ostracized, not being part of either world. She wasn't a servant, and she wasn't a member of the social circle of the upper class people she served. So she was stuck in the middle. Her experience in the situation made her think about how she got there. And she wrote the book in 1787 called Thoughts on the Education of Daughters. This, along with her vindication of the rights of women, have become centerpieces in the effort to support female education. Thoughts on the Education of Daughters centers a lot on sort of moral questions and a lot about etiquette and a lot about how to raise children from a very young age but it also raises good points about where the education of women falls short what they are expected to read what they are expected to learn and how they are expected to behave this theme is also true of vindication of the rights of women in that book she talks a lot about sensibility and it becomes obvious that she despises the sort of sensationalism that was about to become extremely popular in the early to mid 1800s in terms of what women were reading. We know today that what we read and what we think about is what we become. And that's the life that we imagine and envision for ourselves. And the things that women were reading at the time weren't helping them develop their minds. And that's what Mary Wollstonecraft really centered her argument on, that we were making women into something that was not comparable to men. And her writings have become sort of the cornerstone of feminist literature. In the 1970s, a lot of energy was devoted to studying her and her work. And her life is a whole nother interesting topic, which maybe we'll talk about in a different episode, because she was involved in the French Revolution and had a sordid affair and had a child out of wedlock and then got married to a man who loved her so much. And then she died. And so her life was, needless to say, exciting. Um, and the, but there was a lot of emotional turmoil along the way. So it's a longer story. But the bottom line is that her writings have underpinned so many arguments for how women should be educated, how women should be treated fairly, and what was wrong with the culture of the late 18th century. So with Mary Wollstonecraft's death right at the turn of the century, going into the 1800s, education for women changed drastically in this century. Now I've skipped over some Eastern European history here. I'm not an expert in this time frame in Eastern Europe, so I'm less familiar with it. But the first state-financed higher education institution for women was the Smolny Institute for Noble Maidens, and it was established by Catherine II of Russia in 1764. I think that you'll see as we go through all of these episodes that Russia has beat us to women's rights over and over again. And I say us as an American woman. I don't know exactly what group of people that us puts me into, but I admire the way that Russia set everything up. Back into the 19th century, In the early 19th century was when we saw a really strong development of the concept of women in the home. This is when the cult of domesticity and true womanhood came to the fore. And that gave women a few main objectives in life. Now, the cult of domesticity had about four pillars that women should pay attention to. The first is piety. The second was purity. The third, submission. And the fourth, domesticity. This is the reinforcement of everything that Mary Wollstonecraft said was wrong with the rearing of girls. Religion was valued because it didn't take away from women's uh, sort of proper sphere, it controlled the sexual desires of women and prevented them from straying, which leads to purity, um, virginity being the greatest asset, and submission. By not educating women, women remained submissive, not necessarily by choice, but by reality. What other choice did they have? They didn't have the information, the knowledge, to develop a thought or opinion that was worthy of arguing, according to men. And as women have continued to allow themselves to be subjected to this over time, female education is not a priority. As the 19th century progressed, we saw the Civil War in the United States, the Confederation of Canada as a country, the Industrial Revolution, And all these different aspects combined with the pioneering efforts in the new world to sort of redefine the position of women, regardless of the ideological concept of woman's place being the home. So what was traditional for education in the 1800s was that a woman would teach children to read, write, and do basic math, probably within the home. Maybe she taught some neighbors' children, but all that education happened in the home. It was then that boys of means were able to venture out into a formal school. Girls typically didn't participate in this. However, as countries like Canada, the United States, and Great Britain developed legislation offering free public education to children, there was an increased demand for teachers. While making education a public right, it also became a public expense. And with that, teachers' wages had to be paid by the government. So, the government needed cheap teachers. And where else can you go but to find cheap labor to women? So, In the mid-19th century began an era called the feminization of teaching. Previously, teachers were men because men were educated formally. But women could teach the same material and get paid significantly less. So more and more women became teachers and more and more men sort of moved up to higher levels of education. And this is the era that the things that you might be familiar with, little women, published in 1868. Anne of Green Gables, even though it was published in 1908, was set in the 1860s, 1870s. So you start to see this influx of women being thinkers. That can greatly be attributed to, first of all, the independence of women in North America because of the nature of the work in these countries, and pioneering, and sort of the rugged duties of the woman, she became more versatile. But in addition to that, you started to see the influence of having female teachers. So taking a look at Anne of Green Gables, which is my personal expertise, before I even talk about it, I hope you've seen the movies, at least the Sullivan movies from 1985. If not, Hopefully, maybe you've seen *Am* with an E, which veers from the literature, but provides a similar perspective on a girl's experience. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend reading it. But at the core of it, the story is about a girl, an orphan, who goes to live by mistake with this elderly pair of siblings. She's 11 years old. She's used to doing cooking, cleaning, caring for babies, but she likes to dream things up and read books. She's all about fantasy and words, big, awkward words for an 11-year-old. In her story, the male teacher from her school leaves and is replaced with a woman. This is iconic feminization of teaching they start to go to the schoolhouse. They're not educated in their homes. They're going to school. They're getting a female teacher. And as female teachers come into the picture, girls had role models, someone to look up to. And so Anne of Green Gables idolized her teacher and became just like her. She went to college, which was high school. Then she went on to university. And In all of that, she was rare. It was very rare for women to participate in that sphere. She became a teacher. This was obviously becoming more commonplace. But universities, Anne of Green Gables got a scholarship to university. This was basically unheard of. In 1874, Grace Lockhart became the first woman in the British Empire to receive a bachelor's degree, and she was in Canada. And she went to Mount Allison University. If Anne of Green Gables is set in the mid-1870s at that point, she would have been iconic. But this is the era when women started to participate in education. They started to have a choice. They were allowed to go to school. They were allowed to go to high school. And there were schools accepting them for higher education. Women were allowed to be teachers. And it just moved on from there. This is the beginning of women's organizations. This is the beginning of the suffrage movement. And everything from here on out, those first women of the 1870s paved the way for all of us. That brings me to a bit of a side note. In my free time, which I don't have much of, I volunteer with my sorority my sorority was founded at Monmouth College in 1870 by some women in university. In 1870, just like we talked about, 1874 was the year that the first British woman graduated from college, and she was in Canada. So we're talking about women who were on a college campus in 1870. They weren't allowed to be part of men's organizations, and their reaction to that exclusion was to protest it to create their own organization, a Fraternity for Women, that has lasted 150 years this year and blossomed into an incredible charitable, social, and intellectual organization. Those women were incredible. They were groundbreaking. And some of that Resonates with me. I love being able to consider myself part of that amazing group of women. But it doesn't need to be a sorority. The fact that we're women is amazing. Women have done amazing things over time, and women have conquered so many challenges like education. When you look back at this and think, women weren't getting an elementary school education in the eighteen hundreds, and now we have ninety-six percent closed the gender gap on education. We have done amazingly. But it is a bit shocking that we are talking about this a hundred and fifty years later, and we're still seeing gender inequities. We were successful at education. So it's important for us to recognize that We've made strides in education. It's important for us to think about how we did that. And then to take this history and to apply it to other things, to figure out how we can make more progress on other issues. And that's the reason that I'm having this podcast. That's the reason we're doing this. Let's reflect on what women have done, women have accomplished, how we've been held back, and how we've overcome. And through all of that, we can figure out how to help women at home, wherever home may be, and women all around the world to move forward to a more equitable world, to a more equitable life. So I want to talk some more about universities around the world and when women were admitted. In 1803, which is before all of this feminization of teaching that I described, is when the first higher educational institution to admit women was founded, Bradford Academy. Things progress from there. There's the Georgia Female College, which is now Wesleyan. You move on to Mount Holyoke. The University of Iowa was the first co-ed public university in the United States in 1855. Like I mentioned before, something about more rural, more frontier-like situations blurred some gender lines. So what about Harvard? Harvard is kind of an ancient institution in terms of the United States. It's been around since 1636. It wasn't until 1920 that they admitted female students. This kind of timeline begs the question, why weren't women encouraged to explore their curiosity? Besides the fact that educated women are malvier or any kind of thing like that, it was thought that because women's brains physically weighed less than men's, that they weren't competent to undergo the same sort of educational strain, that their brains simply couldn't allow them to be as intelligent as men. And this is where the fun part of this discussion comes in. We know that that's not true and we have proved it and over time have closed that gap. So let's talk about what women have accomplished. At the National Center for Education Statistics, I found a really interesting table. I'll link to it so that you can look at it yourself because I think the numbers could be astonishing for a lot of people. The data spans 1869 to 2006, which is the year I graduated from high school. So I'm not even counted in these totals. Neither are a lot of women. So if we go back to 1869, the total number of women enrolled in college, a degree-granting institution, was 11,126. That's about a quarter of the number of men, which was 41,160. These numbers are minuscule when you think about it today, but you had to have money to go to school back then. If you fast forward to the 2005-2006 school year, there were 10 million and change women enrolled in university compared to seven and a half million men. That paints a picture for you. We went from being one quarter of the number of men enrolled in college to being 130% of the men enrolled in college. This is all American information, so there are still countries where there's a significant gap. And there's a lot to be done in those countries to promote the education of women. But I think that between you and women, between a lot of charitable organizations and just forced change in the perception of females, uh, I think that we're going to see that gap close entirely. So let's go back a little bit and see how we got from 11,000 to 10 million. Between 1869 and 1879, the number of women enrolled in college more than tripled. The number of men almost doubled. In the next 10 years, the number of women almost doubled again to 56,000. Men jumped up to 100,000. So we went from being a quarter to being more than half in 20 years. That's some impressive change. What did we do then? What happened during those 20 years that was monumental? Funny enough, that was the same 20 years that I was talking about before. That was 1868 when Little Women was published. The 1870s when Anne of Green Gables was set. The feminization of teaching, this is where that change came into play. There was a need for women outside the home, and they filled that void in force. After that, the growth continued. 30,000 more in the next decade. In 1909, there were 140,000 women enrolled in college. That's 130,000 more than there were in 1869. Between 1960 and 1970, The number of women enrolled in college more than doubled. So did the number of men. Education became more affordable. The numbers continued to grow for women, and they started to plateau for men. So, in 1969, there were 3.2 million women in the United States enrolled in college. There were 4.7 million men. By 1979, both men and women were at over 5.5 million and there were finally more women enrolled in college than men. And since 1979, there have been more women enrolled in college than men the entire way. A really interesting book that I highly recommend reading is called The End of Men and the Rise of Women. And it's by Hannah Rosen, and I hope that's how you say her name. I love this book. It sounds really dramatic. It is the actual story about how women are rising and men are either plateauing or declining. This matches the educational timeline too. We see the increase of women's participation in education rise in the 1870s. That coincides with the industrial revolution. As power and strength, the need for that declined, the competence of women has risen. Despite what was thought before, our minds work equally to those of men. Our bodies may be weaker, not for everybody. There are women who are physically as competent as men, but our brains have always been equally competent. And as our work has shifted from manual labor to mental labor, women have been able to catch up. That's what we did. That's how you close a gap. We were able to catch up because the playing field became level. There are other challenges now to fight in the workplace and in the home where we can't just make men see things differently, but we can start by being different. And that's where I'm challenging myself and I challenge all of you to think about how you got to where you are and where you want women in the future to be able to go, because we should be paving the way for them. And so I hope that you can enjoy some time to reflect on your place, on women's place, and how we can help future generations of girls and women find their place and take up their space in the world. So until next time, thank you for joining me. And I can't wait to talk with you about some more women's history next time.